Hello. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that through your word tonight, we might indeed grow in our knowledge of Jesus, and especially that we might, even if just a little bit more, grasp just how wonderful the love you have shown us in him really is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be uh, honest with me here, but uh, who has this experience often when they pray, where you say, uh, Dear Heavenly Father, and you go, oh, that's right. I better, uh, I've got to write that down. Does anyone else have that experience where you, get, you start praying and then you get distracted? There's only five people. That means there's only five people that pray in the whole church because I think that is the universal Christian experience. Uh, and what makes this passage so wonderful is that it happened to the Apostle Paul too. But he wasn't distracted by a shopping list but by great theology he wanted to share. In our family, we call it the squirrel moment. Uh, you guys should know this better than the morning congregations. All the morning congregations hadn't seen the movie Up. Who's seen the movie Up? One of my favourite movies. Well, oh, yeah, that not that wonderful? Watch with the kids. That's actually, you know, appropriate for them and all that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, in that movie, there's this dog and he gets this special collar that means his barks get converted into words so he can speak. What's the name of the dog? Is it Doug or something? Is that right? Yes, there you go, Doug the dog. And um, even that's clever. See, I laugh at all these jokes. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Uh, and Doug, whenever he's walking along, is saying, we've just got to go here, squirrel. And that is our dinner table in the Colgan household. We never finish a conversation because people just start a story and then they go, get distracted. And then it's, we call it the squirrel phenomenon. But it happens, I think, to every Christian when we pray. And I found it really comforting this week to see it happen to Paul. Because if you look here at chapter 3, verse 1, having told us all this great theology in chapters 1 and 2... Uh, he gets to chapter 3 verse 1 he says for this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles and he's about to say what he then goes on to say down at verse 14 I kneel before the father I for this reason I pray for you but he gets distracted by the fact that he says I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles and so the next he then takes 13 verses out like a digression to say I've just got this other important stuff I've got to tell you before I pray for you. So we're going to get to the prayer at the end, but we've got to deal with that part first. Uh, And so really what Paul wants to share is that he was given a special job by God for the benefit of Gentile Christians, which is very, very important for us to know because what are we, uh, other than perhaps one or two of us, uh, we are Gentile Christians. We're not from a Jewish background. Uh, but it's important for Jewish Christians too. And so in particular, he wants them to know that he was given a special job by God. So look at verse 1. See how he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Jesus was not holding Paul in prison. He doesn't mean literally Jesus has put me in prison. The Roman authorities put him in prison because the Jewish people complained about him. Uh, That's why he was in prison. But his point is, I am in prison in Rome because... I was telling you Gentiles about Jesus Uh, and he was telling Gentiles about Jesus because that was the special job Jesus had given him to do so look at verse 2 he says you have heard haven't you about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you and then he says down in verse 7 I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me God, God gave all the apostles he gave his whole church the job of preaching the gospel not just to the jews but also to the gentiles but if you've read your new testament you know that all the other apostles were incredibly slow on the uptake 
uh, and couldn't quite get past this barrier of going and sharing the gospel with people who didn't share all the laws that they shared as Jewish Christians. Uh, But Paul, so what God did was he sort of came in and circumvented the process, if you like, and he picked Paul out, the most unlikely person of all, because Paul was on his way to kill Christians, and he picked Paul out. And when Paul was converted, God didn't just say, I want you to understand Jesus and his grace. He then said, now, Paul, now that you've got it, I now want you to go and share it with the whole world. And he said, you, Paul, have got the special job of being the apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul is our apostle. He, more than anyone else, is our apostle. And Paul says the job God gave him was to understand and reveal a mystery to the world. Who doesn't like a good mystery? You know, that was what was good about the Saturday Night Invest. We were solving a mystery. We were just about a second slower than Katrina Eisenhower, who used her football prowess to barge our entrant off the prize. But anyway, I'll I'll talk to you about that later, about grace and so forth, Katrina. But um, but, uh, I'm not bitter about it. But, But you see, for us... That's actually now in the recording forever, Rick. You might have to cut that out later. But anyway, uh, for us, a mystery, when, when we say it's a mystery, we think it's something I don't know. We think it's a conundrum. It's something I've got to solve. It's like an Agatha Christie mystery where, where it's something you don't know. Paul uses the word, and, and the language at that time used the word very differently. A mystery was something you didn't used to know, but now you do know. So when Paul's saying it's a mystery, he's not saying it's hard to understand. It's actually really easy to understand, but it's just you didn't know it until God told you. And so what was that mystery that Abraham didn't know, that David didn't know, that Moses didn't know, that even John the Baptist didn't know? What was that mystery? It's there in verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery that has now been revealed is that anyone can come and become a part of God's people. It's not just for the Jews. Anyone else, a Roman, a Greek, an Australian, a a Korean, a Chinese, a Persian, whoever, anyone can come and become a part of God's people because it is not on the basis of of ethnic background it's not on the basis of who your father is it's not on the basis of what your mum and dad believed it is only on the basis of trusting in Jesus and his gospel now you might say who has done intro to the bible who's done our intro to the bible course put up your hand everyone who's not put up their hand next time it's offered you are required to sign up so there you go but it's my way of tricking you into signing up for intro to the bible but in intro to the bible you read your old testament you saw how from the very beginning it was God's plan to include every nation in his blessings. Even when he made the promises to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Why? So that you will be a blessing to, answer me the question here, people, to the nations. So right from the beginning, in Exodus that we read before, he said, I've saved you out of Egypt so that you'll be a kingdom of priests, so that you'll be a light to the other nations. The prophets kept saying, Gentiles are going to come and they're going to worship God with us. And and so that's been right through the Old Testament. But what was a mystery, what was different is, was it wasn't just going to be a few Gentiles hanging on around the edges. And it wasn't going to be Gentiles having to come and become Jews. God was going to take away every stumbling block and just open the doors to his people totally wide and create a new people, the church made up of Jew and Gentile together, all forming the people of God. 
Now, I don't want to go over what we saw last week, where we saw this in last week's passage, but this just reminds us that the church, our church, must welcome anyone who trusts in Jesus. So anyone who, who, who turns away from their sin and comes and trusts in Jesus must be included and welcomed with open arms into the life of our church. To turn someone away on the basis of worldly divisions like race is to deny the gospel. We used to sing the kids' song, uh, the one where it goes red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight, Jesus loves the little children of the world. Do you know that song? It, kids my age won't know it because it's politically incorrect, you know, and you're not allowed to. You'd have to say Caucasian people and Anglo-Celtic people and, you know, all that sort of thing. But it makes a very powerful theological point. He's saying the doors are open. The doors are open. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to be anything. You just need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and you are welcome in my church. Now, for many of us, when I say my church, I'm not being my church, I mean God's church, you know what I'm saying. Now, for many of us, we take that for granted, don't we? We just assume that to be true. And it's a wonderful blessing as we look around our church and we see people from all sorts of different nations who are a part of our church. It's wonderful. And we believe and we assume it to be true because we never knew a time when it was not true. Although how good a job we actually do of welcoming people who are really different to us is another question. And that's something we need to constantly think about. How good a job do we actually do of removing stumbling blocks that are just cultural, not from the Bible? We can have a think about that another time. But we know this in theory. The church is for all people. But just put yourself in Paul's shoes. He was a Jew. He was the strictest of Jews. He had devoted his life to purifying the people of God and getting rid of anyone who didn't take it seriously. But once God revealed this mystery to him, it totally transformed him. If you ever want to see the power of the gospel, just look at the story of Paul. To go from someone who wanted to kill Christians because they were tainting the people of God, and in a moment he went to saying, I need to convince every person on earth to become a Christian. And look at how he puts it from verse 8. He says, this grace was given to me the least of all the saints. That's him saying, I was a rotter. I'm the least of all the saints. But this grace was given to me to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now he uses rich language but I hope you can see what he's saying. He's saying once I understood the grace of God and once I understood that actually the the riches of Jesus are for every person on earth and every person on earth needs to hear about it. And every person who repents and believes needs to be included. Once I understood that, that just captivated me. And that just drove me. And his logic was, how could I know that and not share it? That's Paul's logic here. How on earth could I come to know that grace and not want to share it? Now, you are not an apostle like Paul. I don't believe any of you here had a Damascus Road conversion where God said to you, not only am I telling you about Jesus, but now I'm giving you a job to take the gospel to the whole world of this day. Your job is to go and plant churches across Turkey and Greece. That None of us are apostles like Paul. But the flow of the logic is the same for us as it is for Paul. And it's the flow of the logic of the New Testament. 
The logic of the New Testament is if you understand that the gospel message of salvation in Christ Jesus, if you understand that that is for all people, then you cannot but want to play a part in seeing it go out to all people. That is the logic of the gospel. And it becomes the centre of your life. And like Paul, you become a servant of the gospel. That's the logic. And that's why we pray constantly. So when we get this, it drives us to prayer for our world, for people to come and hear about Jesus. It means we seek to proclaim Christ to anyone who will listen. And that's why we want to include and welcome anyone who wants to come and hear about Jesus and be included in God's people here with us. If you grasp the mystery of the gospel... It will drive us like it drove Paul. But now we get to the really mind-blowing bit. Uh, Because Paul says, as that gospel goes out, and then as people come in, and as the church grows, and it's made up of Jew and Gentile sitting together, or Lebanese and Greek sitting together, or whatever other ethnic division you can think of, as that happens, that declares God's power and his wisdom to the spiritual powers in the heavens. If you're not listening to this, just come with me here. As you are sitting here, angels and demons are watching you. They're not watching you, they're watching us. And they are being amazed. If that doesn't freak you out on a Sunday evening, I don't know what will. Just look at what he says at verse 10. He says, this is so, that is, God has brought this church together across all divisions. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. You know, when you read a Bible verse and you, you sort of insert what you think it should say, I think I often read that verse and think it's through the church to the world. And I try and tame it down a bit, sort of like that somehow the church existing across all divisions proclaims the gospel of the world. But Paul's saying something much bigger than that here. He's saying it preaches it to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Isn't that freaky? That word there, multifaceted, do you see it there? Uh, In the old translations, it used the word manifold. You might have, if you remember the old prayer book, you might have heard the expression, the manifold wisdom of God or the manifold mercies of God. And the word literally means multicoloured. That's what it means, multicoloured. And I just wonder if Paul and God was having an intentional play, of, play on words here. The multicoloured makeup of the church is what declares God's power. The great preacher John Stott, I've put this on your outline, so look on your outline with me. Uh, he talks about it like this. He says, The church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colourful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It is God's new society. See, when we as a church welcome people like us, whatever your us is, that's wonderful because people find salvation and that's not to be sneezed at. But it doesn't declare God's wisdom to the heavens. It's when we as a church include people from every background, across all the barriers that divide people in our world, and when everyone comes together in the church because they believe in Jesus and so they love one another, that is when God's power and glory and wisdom are really shown in the church. 
Just to make it very clear, who are those rulers and authorities in the heavens who are watching? Well, well, the Bible doesn't tell us much about them, but you cannot be a Christian and not believe in angels and demons. That's what it's talking about. The spiritual realm. And as they look at us every Sunday or Wednesday night in your gospel team or whatever, whenever we meet, we are preaching God's wisdom to them. Because when they see a Jew and a Gentile sitting together loving one another because they trust in Jesus, or when they see a Korean and a Japanese person sitting together because they love Jesus, or a rich person and a poor person, or a Labour voter and a Liberal voter, when they look down and they see that, they say God's grace can overcome any human division. The devil loves to lie to us. That's the devil's job. He lies to us. And he has all sorts of lies to try and get us to not trust in Jesus or to lose our faith or to, or to give up our joy in the gospel. One of his biggest lies at the moment is the lie, yeah, yeah, God said that in the past, but now his word's different. So that's relevant to that whole same-sex marriage thing. The devil says to us, God's word changes over time. You've got to move with the times. That's the devil speaking. That's not the scriptures. God is unchanging. But one of the devil's greatest lies and his most successful lies is to make people dissatisfied with the church I don't mean the institution I don't give two hoots about the institution if you're dissatisfied with that I don't care I'm dissatisfied with that and I'm all... anyway um, but you know what I mean I, I'm not talking about the denomination I'm talking about the real church of God which is the people of God and what the devil does is, is he makes us think look around it's not that impressive and look at how few people are actually following Jesus. Maybe you've got it wrong and maybe you're better off out there in the world, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You, you know, that's the way the devil works and he works in us to say, don't make this group of people a priority and don't welcome people into it. That's how the devil works. Because when he looks and sees even two or three people gathered in the name of Jesus, the devil says, I have lost. Jesus has won. The church preaches God's grace and wisdom to the devil and to the angels. That is how amazing this church is. I don't mean just this church. I'm not saying St. George North all the way. Or, you know, you know. That's how amazing that any gathering of God's people faithfully around God's word is. And what that means is, please do not take it for granted. Please do not take it for granted. And please do not divide it. Please do not divide it. All of this has been setting us up for what Paul wants to tell us next week in chapter 4 about the importance of unity in the church of God and in particular the important role every Christian has in building the church of God. But that's for next week. For now, just understand how precious this is and praise God for it. Now, we've had our squirrel moment. We come back to Paul's prayer, which he picks up again at verse 14. Look with me. He says, For this reason I kneel before the father uh, Jewish people didn't kneel to pray they stood to pray uh, when he says I kneel he's making a point he's saying I'm really really praying it's sort of I'm prostrating myself you get that word wrong and it doesn't work right but you know what I'm saying I am I am really getting down and begging for these things of our father uh, and he's saying it's because of everything I've said about the church how precious it is this is why I pray this so that means this is a wonderful prayer if you want to know what you should pray for your church. So that's what we're looking at. And the first thing he prays is for spiritual strength. Look from verse 16. He says, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
See, he's talking to them in the midst of persecution. He's, he's talking to them when they're, they're tempted to lose their faith, to give up, because their apostle is in jail in Rome. They're thinking, is this all for nothing? And he's saying, so I pray that the Holy Spirit who's within you, if you're a Christian, will strengthen you in your inner being. It's a way of saying, will strengthen your faith. Will give you the courage to stand firm for the gospel. And don't we need that strength living in this world at the moment? I do. I think this is a great thing to pray for one another. And one of the amazing truths of the gospel is that we are never alone because Jesus is in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So the prayer is that that Holy Spirit might strengthen us to stand firm. Second thing he prays for is for a greater grasp of God's love. So look at verse 17. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge. So you see what he says there, you're already rooted and firmly established in love. So if you're a Christian, that's you, because you are, you, if, to be a Christian is to know the love of God. You know that he sent his son to die for you, and to be a Christian is then to love others because God has first loved you. Look at how Jesus puts it in John 13. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. But now he says, I know you've got that foundation, but now my prayer for you is that you might grasp even more the love of God. Because the thing is, it does not matter how long you live, you will never actually grasp quite how amazing the love of God actually is. This is, this is why I know someone hasn't got it when they say to me, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins. I know you haven't got it. Because you know Jesus died for your sins, but you don't know the full depth of what Jesus did for you on that cross. And it doesn't matter how many times you sing the hymn and how many times you read the scriptures and how many times you come to church and be reminded of it, you won't know it enough. It's like, you know the Pacific Ocean is deep. You know, you probably don't, but someone told me this morning. I said, you know the Pacific Ocean is three kilometres deep. And they said, actually, it's 10 kilometres, Phil. It's 10 kilometres deep. Doesn't that blow your mind? The Pacific Ocean is 10 kilometres deep. You know that fact now, I've shared it with you. But you don't know what it is to be 10 kilometres below the ocean. And you know that the universe is wide and that it goes all the way out past Neptune to Pluto and even though it's not a planet anymore. And you know what I'm you know, You know that, but you don't know it until you get on a spaceship and you wouldn't be alive when you got there. But, and you're sailing out the end of the universe. That's when you would know it. And so he's saying, you know that God showed his love to you in Christ dying for you, but you can never fully comprehend what it took for the God of the universe to send his son to become sin, to become sin and take our place and take the full judgment of God to go to hell so that we don't have to. We just cannot fully grasp it. We cannot plummet's depths and say, oh, now I know it. Now I know the love of God fully. And he's actually having a sort of bit of fun with us in verse 19. Look there when he says, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I want you to know something that you can't actually fully know. But gee, I want you to know it better than you know it now. That's what he's saying. See, that's why every time we read the scriptures, we grow in that knowledge of his love just a little bit more. 
And every time we meet together as God's people, we grow in his knowledge of his love just that little bit more. And that is Paul's prayer for us here, that we might just grasp it more than we did yesterday and then more again the day after that. And as we grasp God's God's love more and more, the end goal is, look at the end of verse 19, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean, to be filled with the fullness of God? We spent half an hour on Friday night in my gospel team trying to plumb the depths of what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. Can I tell you, that's not something to do late on a Friday evening. Uh, you get the, I think you get the idea though, I think it's really hard to understand, but you get the idea. I think it means as we grow in his grasping of his love and as he fills us with his spirit, God, Paul's prayer for us is that we might actually be perfect like God. That we might be as God-like as it is possible to be and still be human. That's Paul's prayer for us. Holy like God perfect like God, loving like God. Now, that will only happen fully and finally in heaven when we are glorified with Jesus. But God has started that work in you now. That's God's work in you, his work of sanctification. And so the prayer here is that as we grow in the knowledge of his love day by day, increasing, that God will transform us and grow us more and more and more to be like him, full of grace and love and mercy and compassion. What have we learned here about prayer? just want to finish with two very quick points because I think this teaches us some great things about prayer and what we should pray for ourselves and one another. And I'm going to make two quick points. Firstly, this tells us what God wants us to pray for. Prayers focused on what really matters. Prayer for spiritual strength prayer for knowledge of his love and prayer for growth in God's likeness, in Christ's likeness. All too often my prayers are far too focused on this world, on what I mistakenly think are practical things for people. But actually Paul's challenge here is be impractical in your prayers because that's actually the most practical thing. Pray for what really matters, for growth in faith, for growth in love. For the things that really matter and secondly we learn that God wants us to pray massive prayers like this Paul doesn't just want you to pray that your friend will become a Christian he wants you to have the faith to pray that your friend will become a Christian and then take the gospel to people in Africa that's what he wants you to pray and he doesn't just want you to pray that you'll grow in godliness he wants you to pray that you will grow so that you are like Christ God wants us to pray massive prayers and too often my prayers for you and for me are far too small We pray to the God who can move mountains. So ask him to move mountains. That's what Paul does. That is the God who is at work in us to strengthen our faith, to grow us in love, to build up his church. And that's what drives Paul to this last little reminder at the end. Look at the last verses, verse 20. Sort of like a hymn of praise. He says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Nothing more to say other than let's pray to that God. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that all too often our prayers are too small because we do not believe that you are able to do more than we could even ask or imagine. So Father, help us to be a people who pray and know that you are at work in us and through us in your church. 
And so, Father, we pray for us gathered here that we might recognise how precious we are to you. And in particular, we pray that you will strengthen us in our faith, strengthen us to stand firm for Jesus. And we pray that you will help us to grasp more each day just how amazing the love of Jesus is. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.